We are so delighted uh, today to have Stephanie White with us to present uh, uh, her topic on race, medicine, and ethics, the start of a conversation. To introduce her is Tim Leahy. Very briefly for Tim, he's an associate professor of medicine of the Dartmouth Institute and of the Department of Medical Education. He is the director of education for the Dartmouth Institute. And in his role as inviting Stephanie today, he's the chair of our Dartmouth Hitchcock Ethics Committee. So Tim, come and tell us about Stephanie. Morning. Um, let me not forget to wish you a happy World AIDS Day. Um, today we're going to talk about um, not the uh, historical uh, ethical issues that are easy to think about, the, uh, the genocide and the murder and the other you know, sort of marquee topics that, um, that uh, are easy to, uh, to think about and conceptualize and put over here, but to talk about um, the stuff that happens every day that is part of the small acts that each of us take and contribute to and which continue to perpetuate great wrong in the world. And, uh, and I, th I thought today would be a great date to talk about that since that is so relevant to the 40 million people with HIV today. So I want to give you some facts about our uh, honored speaker today, Dr. Stephanie White, and then just a brief interpretation of those facts. So uh, um, Dr. White is the graduate of the University of California at Santa Barbara and um, also the University of Pittsburgh and residency at uh, Jackson Memorial and University of Mississippi. Huh? My, uh, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi, Miami. Oh, God. Good Lord. I'm already thinking about the next line. Um, so after uh, a few years in Oklahoma, I mean, uh, uh, Miami, she, uh, she um, joined us at Geisel uh, in 2015, uh, where she is an assistant professor of uh, pediatrics. Um, it's hard for me to believe that she's actually only been here since uh, 2015. Uh, Stephanie has had uh, wide-reaching and deep impacts on the experience of our students and faculty here, and so I'll name just a couple of examples of how she's done this, but uh, it's an incomplete list. Um, so uh, she is the Geisel Diversity Liaison for Student and Resident ad Advising. And in that role, and I think also outside of that role because uh, she uh, gives 110% in lots of different ways, she has made a, a huge impact already on admissions at Geisel as a member of the admissions committee on the overall curriculum here, uh, uh, advising many people uh, about uh, improvements in the way we teach education in systematic as well as case-by-case -case, um, ways. She uh, represents Geisel to the double AMC uh, on diversity. She is a, a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She has written nationally about race and medicine in really high-profile uh, op-eds that uh, do the institution credit and I think move the national conversation forward. And uh, she's also an award-winning uh, teacher in her own right uh, who is not content to rest on her laurels, uh, but is also, uh, as evidence of being a lifelong learner, uh, currently uh, masochistic enough to be in, engaged in a uh, master's program at Rutgers in uh, education of health professionals. So this is somebody who is uh, deeply dedicated to uh, teaching and learning and making a big difference here. So there's nobody I know more credible to talk about this topic. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephanie White.
morning. Can everyone hear me with the mic? Thank you so much, Tim, for that introduction, although I kind of sound like I never get any sleep, which is how I feel most days. <laughs> so thank you all for being here this morning. So I have initially gave a version of this talk to the Department of Pediatrics at Pediatric Grand Rounds, and I've spoken on this topic to various committees around campus, including the Dean's Advisory Board and the Medical Education Committee. Um, and this morning, I am going to take a completely different approach, and we're going to pull in some of the ethical considerations as we talk about race and medicine. And while I have no conflicts of interest to resolve, I would like to take a few minutes to set the stage for this talk. So for the purpose of this presentation, I speak to you from the lens of a heterosexual, cisgendered black female. And I start with this because we're going to talk about bias and we're going to talk about race. And all of us have biases, and I'm just going to put it out there that I, too, have these biases and speak from this lens. But because we have been increasingly uncomfortable talking about race and black and white and racism, I want you to also brace yourself that I am going to mention these words on nearly every single slide of this presentation. So you'll get over it pretty soon by slide five. You'll be good. And I would lastly like to acknowledge that you will note that I speak mostly from an African-American perspective, one, because that is the perspective I understand the most, but I do not want to negate the experiences of other minority populations who have sustained health-harming um, disparities as well. So how do we define race? It was really exciting when the emojis started becoming, <laughs> you could change the skin colors. So Ruth Frankenberg in her book, The Social Construction of Whiteness, argues that our daily lives are affected by race, whether we are aware of it or not. We all see the world through a racial lens that colors it black, white, Asian, Mexican, minority, or other. And how we are seen and how we see others affects the various domains of our life from where we work, to what we eat, to the friends we have, to how much money we make. And so it's impossible to completely take race out of the picture. In the early 1900s, race was mapped onto continental populations. And there was a belief that one member of this population shared similar physical and social traits as other members of the population. And when you think about that now, it seems kind of silly to think whole continents of people would all be the same, but yet that was the thought. In the early 1930s, race was reimagined in the context of evolutionary biology in thinking that certain populations of people share certain gene alleles and this is how we're going to understand medicine and health disparities and disease better. And so we now know from studying the genomes of individuals from different parts of the world that there is little genetic variation between different populations of people. And so in 1906, W.E.B. Du Bois published The Health and the Physique of the Negro American, in which he expressed concern that race was being used as a biological explanation for what he understood to be social and political cultural differences between populations of people. And so it is now pretty well accepted that race is a social construct Scholars argue that these constructs are created by the dominant group as a way to acknowledge difference and or impose boundaries. And they are contingent upon these social groups accepting them. 
And so if you look at the racial categories in the U.S. Census over the last 200 years, you'll note the slight variations, and you can imagine perhaps some of the social environment and social context that changed in those years to cause us to reclassify things differently. And so the racial lens that Ruth Frankenberg speaks of continues to exist in our society and in the field of medicine. And I am not arguing that we need to get away from racial categories. In fact, I feel like they are helpful for some things, especially when we talk about health disparities, and that will um, come up in a few slides. But we need to get away from the negative stereotypes that we have attached with these racial categories. And that's where the work needs to be done. So why do these conversations matter? Minorities are soon to be the majority of the US population. According to the US Census Bureau in 2014, there were more than 20 million children under the age of five living in the US, and over 50% of them were minorities. The minority population is expected to rise from the current 38% to 56% in 2060. And these conversations matter because there continues to be health disparities in minority communities. In 1984, Secretary of Health and Human Services Margaret Heckler noted that despite documented progress in the health of Americans, there was continued disparity in the burden of death and illness experienced by blacks and other Americans in the US and other minority Americans. And so the Heckler Report, which some of you may have heard of, was the first comprehensive study of the health status of minorities. And it was interesting in reading the report, in the beginning there's an introduction by Secretary Heckler and she states that it can and should mark the beginning of the end of the health disparity that has for so long cast a shadow on the otherwise splendid American track record of improving health. And so nearly 20 years later, after we kind of quantified and understood health disparities, the medical community was shaken again when the Institute of Medicine released the report on unequal treatment, confronting racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. And so for some, it was unfathomable that in 2003, this report concluded that although there are multiple sources that contribute to disparities, there is some evidence that suggests that bias, prejudice, and stereotyping on the part of healthcare providers may contribute to differences in care. And as a medical student at the time, I remember thinking, okay, we're, we're learning all these algorithms, we're learning you know, the medicine behind caring for patients, but then you have this report that comes out and says, well, none of that may actually matter because there's something else that's happening that's affecting our outcomes. In 2015, Congresswoman Dr. Robin Kelly, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust, compiled a report to examine the nationwide health disparities that continued 30 years after the Heckler Report. And so despite professing that health disparities were gonna be over, 30 years later, we see that, not surprisingly, these disparities continue. And although there have been general improvements in our health, there continues to be a significant difference between black and white patients. For example, the number of people that die from strokes have decreased significantly, but black patients are 1.4 times more likely to die from a stroke than a white patient. And I'm not sure how clearly that all transmits, but black patients are also more likely to die of cancer, diabetes, and heart disease than white patients. 
And so although these diseases are more, popular, more um, prevalent in the adult population, these disparities actually start very early on in life, including in my pediatric patients. So infant mortality rate is an important indicator of the health of a nation, right? This is our future. This is the next generation. And I realize that in speaking to an adult medicine audience, you probably want to, like, tune out when we talk about the baby parts. But I promise it will come back around to you. So eventually, as a country, it is important to note the continued work that we need to do on our infant mortality rate. And according to the CDC's 2014 National Vital Statistics Report, you can see that the U.S. ranks behind several other developed nations. And so some of you, when hearing this, may say, oh, well, that's because we do so much of a better job with premature infants or low birth weight infants, and we're able to save babies at a younger age. But these um, statistics hold true even when we account for those medical advances. So our goal for Healthy People 2020, which is right around the corner, is to achieve an infant mortality rate of 6.0. And despite this, if you kind of look at the chart, 6.0 isn't really going to move us up that far. I mean, I think it's a hopefully realistic goal, and so you don't want to completely um, set unrealistic expectations. But it's not really going to move the bar that far forward. And so as we think about tackling this problem, we must acknowledge the notable disparity when the data is separated by race. Black infants in the United States are over twice as likely to die before their first birthday than our non-Hispanic white infants. And in 2012, the infant mortality rate for black infants was higher than the 1985 rate for white infants. So in 27 years, despite all the medical advances, we still have this discrepancy. So the leading causes of death for black infants are low birth weight, congenital malformations, maternal complications, and sudden infant death. And low birth weight status has the highest black-white mortality gap, with black infants being 3.5 times more likely to die compared to non-Hispanic white infants. And as studies are done to understand this gap, researchers find that neither socioeconomic status nor maternal risk factors entirely explain these racial disparities. Thus, I, even as a black physician, have to face the fact that my children may have a different start to life than many of my colleagues. And that's simply because of my blackness. And to compound matters, health, um, health providers often view these patients in a different light, thinking that they did something to cause these problems in their baby. So you have a small little baby in the NICU, and the parents are viewed as having negative um, some sort of negative environment that contributed to this. In 2017, there was an article published in the American Journal of Public Health on the progress that's been made over the past 15 years to address this black-white infant mortality gap. An analysis of the gap at a state level shows that seven states have been making some improvements, and if they continue to make improvements, for those seven states, we can reach um, racial equality by 2050. So... 23 years from now, things may be semi-even in seven states in the United States. And so to come back to how this affects, affects you, if we eliminated this racial gap, we could save 12 babies every day, which eventually means 12 more patients every day for you guys. <laughs> 
As former writer and civil rights activist Audre Lorde once stated, there is no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we do not live single-issue lives. And so intersectionality has become a buzzword in academia. And in the Upper Valley, I think one of the easiest ways to understand it is um, that is a key factor when we talk about our poor, rural, often white patients. Each of these things in isolation may be manageable, not easy to tackle, but we could come up with some solutions. But when we combine all of these characteristics, they make for some of our most challenging cases. And so intersectionality holds that there is no singular experience of an identity. For example, we cannot understand women's health solely through the lens of gender. It's necessary to consider other social categories, such as ability, race, and class, to have a fuller understanding of the range of women's health concerns. And so black and, and Latina women, for, for example, experience different health disparities and problems assessing health care than white women do. So what is it about racial differences that accounts for the disparities seen between black and white patients? So racism. Racism can be defined as a phenomenon that maintain or exacerbate avoidable and unfair inequities in um, power, resources, or opportunities, and it's expressed through beliefs, emotions, and behaviors. There are three main levels of racism, and I'll go through them briefly. Internalized racism is the incorporation of racist beliefs into one's worldview. Interpersonal is racist interactions between individuals. And systemic or institutional are racism, racism that occurs from policies or practices within institutions. And research of racial discrimination in health primarily focuses on the middle one, interpersonal racism. It's viewed as a psychosocial stressor that operates through the stress pathway. And there is growing evidence leaking experiences of discrimination to biomarkers of disease and well-being. A 2015 study by our very own Dartmouth College biological anthropologist, Zenaida Thayer, evaluated whether the stress hormone cortisol increased in pregnant women in response to discrimination experiences. And so she evaluated saliva samples from 64 mothers and infants. And 34% of these women reported some sort of ethnic discrimination. The results show that for the women that reported discrimination, they had worse self-rated health, a higher evening cortisol level, and infants with higher cortisol reactivity, meaning that discrimination events that occurred to mom during her pregnancy continued to be detected in the, her six-week-old baby. Dr. Thayer concluded that discrimination experiences can have biological impacts in pregnancy, and since the infants were also affected, this impact can cross generations. And so researchers have provided this as a possible reason for the disparity in the number of black infants with low birth weight and the high infant mortality rate. And so if race is a socially constructed idea that does not have a biological basis in terms of how it's um, organized, but can lead to significant differences in health outcomes, and those health outcomes can cross generations, then it's no wonder why, why it's such a difficult topic to tackle. And so studies have shown that racism impacts health and health care. On the patient side of things, there is a documented relationship between racism and, as we just said, cortisol blood pressure, and heart rate responses, which have been linked to the development of hypertension and cardiovascular disease, just to name a few. 
Additional literature demonstrates that consistent relationships between racism and smoking and substance use, less use of preventative services like cholesterol testing or mammography, and non-adherence to prescribed medical regimens. And so racism can also impact the delivery of healthcare. Impairments in the patient-provider relationship may undermine efforts to promote healthy behavior. Studies have found that physicians make differential estimates of risk for disease and spend less time planning and collaborating with individuals from some racial groups. In her book, Just Medicine, Dana Bowen Matthew, a professor of law at the University of Virginia, states that the most tragic proof that racial and ethnic injustice is alive and well is in the phenomena we politely call health disparities. She argues that a significant cause of these health disparities is the unconscious racial and ethnic bias that infects our healthcare delivery system. And I want to read one excerpt from the book, which I think solidifies this point. Evidence shows that patients hold implicit biases and thus react to providers' discrimination through the lens of their own experiences with race, bias, and inequity. The result is a viciously reciprocal cycle of miscommunication between doctors and patients that ultimately harms patients' health. When patients perceive or experience discrimination arising from implicit biases, they respond rationally by seeking to minimize the recurrence of the offense. Thus, minority patients are more likely to switch providers, less likely to follow up on or adhere to the doctor's advice, and more likely to generally distrust their providers. Decreased patient satisfaction and decreased continuity of care follow to the detriment of minority health outcomes. And so I need to take a minute to define and contextualize implicit bias. Implicit bias or unconscious bias is likely a term that you've heard many times, and some of you may have even taken an implicit association test from Harvard's Project Implicit. Every single person in this room has implicit biases. It's part of being human. It's who we are. A bias is a negative attitude held about one group of people relative to another group of people. But implicit implies that the negative association operates unintentionally or unconsciously, whereas explicit biases operate with a person's awareness and intent. And researchers have shown that our implicit biases trump our explicit preferences. And so as physicians, I believe that we all have genuine explicit beliefs and intentions to provide excellent care to all patients, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. This is what we went into medicine for. However, because implicit biases function without any conscious awareness and inform our perceptions, they can lead to unintentional discrimination. So what does this have to do with ethics? As I recap this op-ed published by Stat News on November 14th, I want you to think about the four main principles of medical ethics. And I promise this will be my last pediatric example today, but I thought it appropriately highlighted the little ways that this can manifest clinically. So the author, Nana Matoba, describes her reaction to a recent study from Stanford University that evaluated the care to premature infants in the NICU. Composite scores that included nine measures of quality neonatal care, such as timeliness of eye exams, speed of weight gain, and death during hospitalization were lower among African-American infants than among white infants, which suggests that implicit bias might be at work. 
And so the author stated, like many of my colleagues, I was outraged by these results. Then I realized that I have sometimes treated babies and their parents differently because of their race or ethnicity. I have clumsily retreated from a family when I saw a portable video interpreter next to their baby's bedside, saying to the nurses, I'll be back to update, and then not rushing back to do so. I've spent 45 minutes during morning rounds chatting with mothers who visit their babies every morning and stay all day. But then there are those parents who miss my daily rounds because parking downtown is expensive and they must park during off hours to get a discount, who I don't take time to call every day. Since I have recognized these unintentional but nonetheless deplorable behavior of myself, I am making an effort to adjust my actions so that my biases don't affect the babies under my care. As if a physician like me, one who took an oath to do no harm, who dedicated herself to giving every baby a chance, who knows what it's like to be discriminated against, and whose research focuses on disparities in neonatal care, can unintentionally practice medicine with implicit bias, then anyone could be doing it. I told you it was an okay example, right? <laughs> All right. And so despite having standards of care to treat diseases and medical conditions, despite our emphasis on treating all patients equally, practicing evidence-based medicine, promoting harm reduction, none of this can really be accomplished without acknowledging our own implicit biases and actively working to reduce them. So the examples that I provided are how we typically think about race-based health disparities, which can be significantly impacted by provider bias. And I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about the other end of the stethoscope, another way that race intersects healthcare. So there is a growing body of literature and experiences that highlight a different form of discrimination occurring in the healthcare system. Patient bias and the medical practice of race-based patient accommodations. And so as physicians, our lives are filled with a series of accommodations. And let's face it, shared decision-making is basically an act of accommodation, right? So we do it every day. In 2010, researchers at the University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, and University of Rochester surveyed 176 emergency physicians across the U.S. on the culture of accommodating in the hospital setting. And so they used um, a nine-question survey that included Likert skills and vignettes to investigate perceptions of patient requests for same gender, race, and religion providers. And the thought was that since the emergency department is an entry point to the healthcare system for many immigrants and some minority patients, if a provider is willing to accommodate a seemingly extreme request by a patient, it speaks to their willingness to accommodate patients in smaller but significant ways. And so when facing patient requests for providers of the same gender, provider gender but not race, practice type, or years in practice influence the likelihood of accommodation. Female providers were more likely to accommodate such requests than male providers. Requests were more likely granted when the patient was a woman, a racial minority, or Muslim. The study showed that a minority of emergency medicine providers believe that patients perceive better care from providers of their own background. And this contradicts patient-level data, which consistently shows that patients from minority backgrounds are more satisfied when receiving care from providers with similar characteristics. And so this knowledge gap may affect provider behavior towards patient requests 
and strategies aimed at improving workforce diversity. So is this culture of accommodation ethical? Is it okay for us to say that some patient article, Dr. Kamani Paula Mill, an associate professor of law at Fordham, discussed the legality of the culture of accommodation? Acceding to patients' race-based requests may appear to contravene anti-discrimination norms. The 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawed discrimination against individuals based on race, color, or national origin. Title II of this act prohibits consumer preference discrimination, but hospitals are actually not listed under the establishments that Title II applies. Title VII of the act addresses employment discrimination, and so thinking, well, is one provider being discriminated against because a patient doesn't want them to take care of them? And Dr. Paula Mill argues that this doesn't really apply since the decision to accede to a patient's request for same-race physicians is not made by hospital administrators, but rather by physicians who are deciding how to best meet the needs of their patient. And there have been no lawsuits with physicians for same-race um, prefer preferences. And so indulging in a patient's request for a physician of a particular race is not to discriminate against the physician, but rather to provide optimal care to each patient. By doing so, we may counter the effects of implicit biases, discrimination, and stereotyping by physicians, which can contribute to health disparities. But what are the limits of this? What are the limits to accommodation? Although it appears to benefits patients of all races, the source of the patient's racial preferences should, be, should play a part in whatever decision we, we make in going forward. And so positive and negative experiences may cause a patient to reject or request a physician of a particular racial background. But what happens when this request is the manifestation of racism? And so let's talk about the difference between patient preference and patient bias. And so we had technical difficulties between my three computers this morning. And so I had a YouTube video that went around over the summer that talked about um, a Canadian case where a woman goes into a clinic and requests a white doctor. And so I was going to show the video, but the video is not going to work. So I'm just going to play the audio, and you can use your imagination. And then if you wanted to Google it later, um, it should be pretty easy to find. My doctor, that was not white, that did not help my kid. I would like to see a white doctor. You're telling me there's not one white doctor in this whole entire building? Yes, no. Oh, oh my god. Well, what's the closest that you have to speaking English? Okay. So, hospital is the best. No, no, I stood there, and they only have brown doctors. The woman repeatedly demanded that a white doctor who speaks English and, quote, doesn't have brown teeth treat her son. And so one of the other patients from the waiting room recorded this interaction, and it feels different, right? It feels different than a patient requesting a black physician because they feel like that physician can relate to them or understand their experiences. And unfortunately, cases of physicians encountering racist patients are increasing. 
Over the past year, there have been several articles and op-eds discussing encounters with, patient, with racist patients. And one of them was written by Dr. Julie Kim, who is a pediatric hematologist oncologist here at DH. And I know I am lying because I'm telling another pediatric story, but it's not really about the pediatric part. It's about Dr. Kim. <laughs> and so Dr. Kim wrote about her experiences when a father requested a different team to take care of his child because an Asian American, an African American, and a Latino American were not the type of doctors he wanted to care for his son, even if those were the best providers to treat his son's cancer. Patients who demand accommodation for racial, bi racial biases present healthcare providers with a difficult conflict involving the professional obligation to provide non-discriminatory care their sense of social justice and personal integrity, and their ethical obligations to respect patients' autonomy. In Dr. Kim's case, she was working with residents. So for those of us in academic medicine, we have the added professional obligation of creating inclusive learning environments. And I will turn over to our learners for a moment to highlight the fact that medical students frequently encounter racially insensitive comments. Last year, a fourth-year student from the University of Virginia School of Medicine wrote an op-ed discussing her experiences with race in medicine. She stated, again and again, during my four years of training, I encountered racism and ignorance directed at either patients or at me and other students of color. Yet it was hard for me to speak up, even politely, because as a student, I felt I had no authority. And I didn't want to seem confrontational to senior physicians who would be writing my evaluations. She went on to describe an experience she had on her medicine rotation, which patient called her colored girl three times in front of the attending. The attending did nothing and did not say anything afterwards. And so despite the other positive interactions that the student had with her attending, the silence in those moments is what she remembered most. In 2016, Dr. Paula Mill and colleagues published a New England Journal of Medicine article discussing the challenges and an approach to deal with racist patients. When patients reject physicians based on their race or ethnic background, there is little guidance on how to effectively balance the patient's interests, the medical personnel's employment rights, and the duty to treat. Competent patients have the right to refuse care, right? This is what ethics always discusses. And um, as long as they have informed consent, we need to take all of their opinions into consideration. Patients presenting in an emergency condition are protected by EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, which was established initially to prevent hospitals from dumping patients so that some ho private hospitals or hospitals in certain areas wouldn't just send all of X patient types to the public hospital down the street. But instead, emergency departments are required to screen, stabilize, and provide proper medical treatment. And then physicians have employment rights, but as we discussed earlier, the Civil Rights Act does not really apply in the hospital setting. And so the authors argue that there are five ethical and practical factors to consider while negotiating, persuading, and accommodating these patients. And so they um, came up with this algorithm, and the boxes in orange are the five that they feel are most important. One box has two points, so that's why it seems a little bit off. But the patient's medical condition in the clinical setting should be the most important factor in decision-making. Assessing their medical condition, and if they're unstable, you must treat. In some cases, this may mean accommodating their preference. 
Then, as with all ethical considerations, you must assess the patient's decision-making capacity. Bigotry may be attributed to reversible causes like delirium and psychosis, but regardless of if this is the case, patients should be informed that racist speech is not allowed. Then they argue you should determine the reason for a request. A racially concordant physician may be ethically appropriate, as we've discussed earlier. In discussing the options, the authors believe that institutions should not accommodate patients in stable condition who persist with reassignment requests based on bigotry. And so options could be, we are more than happy to care for you, but these are the circumstances under which we expect you to treat our employees. And if you do not wish to participate in this with us, then we can find somewhere else for you to go. And while that's not fair, because then another institution has to deal with these same thoughts, um, it does provide an environment where the employees that we are most concerned about in that immediate time are taken care of. And then finally, you need to discuss the impact on the physician. Understandably, these instances can be painful and degrading. Physicians need to be supported through the process. And so just like the medical student who encountered um, that patient, the fact that there was no follow-up or no discussion afterwards is, is the hard part to grapple with. Last year, Dr. Emily Whitgub and other researchers from Stanford published a piece in academic medicine titled The Discriminatory Patient and Family Strategies to Address Discrimination Towards Trainees. And so this was motivated by a case of discrimination um, towards a resident by a family in the emergency department. And the physicians wanted to figure out how to respond effectively to mistreatment by patients and families. The article identified four themes. Assessing the illness acuity, cultivating a therapeutic alliance, depersonalizing the event, and ensuring a safe learning environment for trainees. And so this article is really useful in, in that it discusses possible statements or responses to address these areas. And a lot of times for attendings, providers, it's like, okay, well, how do we start the conversation? They can be very awkward conversations to have, especially if you haven't had many of them. And so having some prompts of things that you can say could be very helpful. And so for the sake of time, I will not go through the details of this. I will note, however, that this article and the last article with the algorithm that I noted are the foundation of a patient bias algorithm that Dr. Julie Kim, Dr. Shani Pinto-Powell, and myself have drafted for DH. And so what do we do with all of this information? On the patient level, should there be a patient empowerment approach to dealing with racism as a means of addressing health disparities? Should we work to identify and develop effective individual level coping strategies? And when I first read about this in a Journal of Behavioral Health article, I was kind of annoyed um, because, you know, is it fair to say that minorities should learn to tolerate unfair treatment? On the other hand, if minority communities understood how race and the other social determinants of health really impacted their life, would they be more open to ways of lessening that impact? One suggested approach is to help patients expand their coping strategies and to decrease the adverse consequences that come from internalizing racist attitudes. And perhaps by controlling the activation of the stress pathway, we can lessen some of the downstream health effects. And I was skeptical 
Um, but there is likely some value to self-care and resiliency when dealing with racism. There's the unfortunate reality that racial biases aren't going away anytime soon. And perhaps in our quest to live in a post-racial or colorblind world, the minority community became too concerned with trying to fix the problem and lost some of our coping mechanisms along the way. And I'm not implying that this is the job of physicians, but rather, should this be a shift of perspective for community health initiatives? Much like I was talking at dinner last night when you started seeing the tobacco awareness campaigns and what cigarette smoking could do to your body, um, that really changed the perception of how some people viewed the act of smoking. At the provider level, there is little empirical evidence of the effectiveness of diversity and cultural competency trainings. New efforts are needed to promote an appreciation of differences while recognizing that race is only one salient characteristic of each individual. One of the frustrating parts for many is that after you take an implicit association test and you see all the biases that you have, you feel like you're doomed to a life of bias, right? And it can really be overwhelming and discouraging. The good news is that we know that implicit biases are malleable and they can be reversed and revised based on current information. And so a stereotype is merely the activation of a pattern, and these are quite elastic. This means that interventions can be strategically introduced to provide inputs that alter implicit biases. And there are many models for this, but the key point is that stereotypes can be controlled if a person is willing to invest intention, attention, and time. There are institutional resources um, even here at Dartmouth to help Dr. Leslie Henderson, the Dean of Faculty and the Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion makes presentations to departments and she may have made one to the Department of Medicine at some time that talks about how implicit biases impact search processes for faculty. Um, the Office of Institutional Diversity and Equity, even though it's a Dartmouth College-based office, it is open to the one Dartmouth community and the Upper Valley in general and they have a number of programs and community engagement resources and consultations that all work to increase awareness. And then there is our medical education system. Learning experiences throughout medical education are filled with bias. Teaching and assessing race as a biological category is still common in medical education. And the problem with this is that it can continue to promote these stereotypes in the next generation of physicians. So many schools have started implementing cultural competency models where professionals learn approaches to communication, diagnosis, and treatment, but often these unfortunately reinforce stigma because there is no consideration for the context. And so in the past few weeks, there was an article published in Academic Medicine entitled Racism and Bias in Health Professions Education, How Educators, Faculty Developers, and Researchers Can Make a Difference by Dr. Rena Karani and colleagues. And it provides an insightful way of thinking about how race and bias can be incorporated um, in our work as academicians. And so if any of you are interested, I would encourage reading that article. In April 2017, Dr. Zocosta and Ackerman Barger published a piece in academic medicine entitled Breaking the Silence, Time to Talk About Race and Racism. And in the article, the authors highlighted that recent events in the United States have catalyzed the need for all educators to begin paying attention to and discovering ways to dialogue about race. No longer can health profession educators 
ignore or avoid these difficult conversations because our students are demanding them. Goodwill and good intention are not enough. And current faculty development programs are no longer sufficient to meet the educational challenges of delving into issues of race, power, privilege, identity, and social justice. And so Dr. Acosta is the new Chief Diversity Officer of the Association of American Medical Colleges and will be coming to our campus on January 5th to give a combined medicine and surgery grand rounds titled Equity Mindedness and Inclusion Excellence, the next generation of work for academic medicine. And then for our faculty, he will also be presenting at the game symposium the following day in a talk entitled Bridge Over Troubled Waters, Crossing the Cultural Divide to talk about race and racism in academic medicine. And so while there are many more things that can be discussed, I want to save some time for you to contribute to the conversation. And race is a piece of the puzzle and may be one of the key pieces in improving health disparities in minority communities. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Well, thank you. Um, my experience of you as a colleague and friend has been that you have this remarkable ability to be provocative and challenging. At the same time, you're gentle and thoughtful and inclusive. And so I, I, I imagine others just got a great taste of that and, and look forward to hearing what, uh, what questions people have. And if you have none, that is fine, too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, I was just wondering if um, you had any thoughts or reading about things to do in situations that feel sort of like an emergency. And um, what I'm thinking of is when you have a learner under your care or under your supervision and you go and see a patient and somehow in the course of that encounter they're exposed to um, meanness or harm, it, it really feels like an emergency. It's mm -hmm. pretty devastating. I get emotional about this. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there's no algorithm to push. You know, there's no, um, like the fire alarm goes off and you have four steps you take. So I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about what to do in those situations that really feel like this is urgent. Mm -hmm. um, your learner has been harmed. Right. So um, in the patient bias algorithm that I spoke of that um, Julie Kim and Roshini and I myself are establishing, there is a portion of that that talks about from the attending or supervisory point of view. Um, and really it's a matter of understanding some key phrases to like start that conversation. I think there's a false expectation that you have to fix this. And I think as a minority provider, I don't expect you to fix it, but acknowledging it is one of the key factors. And so, you know, you come out of the room, you figure out a way of not having another patient room to go in right away so that you can debrief about it. The student may not be ready to debrief right then. They still may need some time to process it. But, you know, saying, well, that had to be so uncomfortable. I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, you know, the same ways that we would talk to patients about difficult things, we just have to flip, flip it a little bit for our students. And we don't have to have some profound message of explaining all the wrong, right? But it's more of just expressing empathy and that you have a listening ear and you can be there for the students to kind of vent in that moment. Um, but it's the open-ended question you know, that we learn throughout medical education that I think starts that conversation. And if the student doesn't want to talk about it, and at least they know that you were supportive. 
some years ago, a man by the name of Bernard Fermi Lau, a physician for social responsibility, is one of the first person and group of people to, to ask physicians to be political. My question to you is, do you see a role for us to be political in dealing with the present implicit and explicit racism that's taking part and propagated by the present current administration? Do you see us being able to do more than we do? Well, there's, there's always the and, right? Um, but you have to start somewhere. So yes, you can have a political agenda where you're advocating for these issues, but the thing that's really impacting your direct life and your direct community probably deserve your attention and would benefit from your attention a little bit more in those, in those acute moments. And so when you think about, you know, would it be better for me to kind of work from the top down or the bottom up, I think you kind of have to work from the bottom up and then hope that there is a, an opportunity for a top-down approach. But I think that's what, what Lown rejected because that's what he was, that's mm -hmm. what I think he mm -hmm. was told to do. And when in fact he said, no, enough of this. We have to, we have to, and it had to do with uh, a nuclear, nuclear uh, stuff. And, and he said, no. That's not, and so what I'm saying is, yes, I agree with you, that's the work that we can do, but not at the exclusion of the body. Right, not at the exclusion. Yeah, I'm thinking of, about a minority patient asking for a, um, a provider. I was thinking about a medical student wanting to have a teacher who looks like them. And I was wondering if you could comment on the challenges of developing a diverse faculty mm -hmm. to take care of students. Here at Dartmouth? <laughs> um. <laughs> so I too have heard such things exist, right? Students wanting professors and attendings that have similar experiences. Um, so, where to start, such a big topic. Um, it's, I think, one of, how politically correct do I wanna be? Um, I think one of the challenges with dealing with that in our current system is the divide between the hospital and the medical school. I, from working kind of more on the medical school side of things, I see initiatives and efforts that are made towards improving faculty diversity. There are standards in place of how to change searches, how to advertise in the proper places, how to make sure conferences are attended so that people get a different view of what Dartmouth or Dartmouth-Hitchcock is. And there is evidence that those, those practices will work. However, since there's a divide between DH and the medical school, it has really no control over faculty hires it makes it difficult when those two things don't work symbiotically. And I don't know of, you know, we, we don't have a chief diversity officer in the hospital. Most hospitals and institutions will have a chief diversity officer whose specific job is to do this, 
who knows the literature, who knows the conferences, who knows the population, who can speak the language from the CEO, but then can also relate to providers, who can provide training on implicit biases and help to create a different environment. And so I think until our institutions are willing to invest capital in having that person here, it's going to be hard. I, I will now say, there are more questions. <laughs> I will say, though, that what you allude to is only one year in the making. So all that you see of the inequities of faculty hires was under the same Dartmouth policies until, until a year ago. Right. So but, we've just now entered into this um, difference of mm -hmm. educational search um, mandates not applying. Right. So it all was there. It was all the same problem. So the question really is, what has been the issue? And it because it, it was that way up until a year ago. Well, yes, but I think the separation added to made it even more difficult and made it more obvious as to why you need a chief diversity officer. I agree with that. And so it hasn't happened because there has been no one until it's someone's job, their everyday job, not like a piece of their passion project, right? Until it's their job and they have resources to do it, then you won't really have any outcomes. We have time for one more question. Uh, Dave and Joe, do you guys want to duke it out? <laughs> the uh, anecdote of, of the uh, student and attending uh, with the racist patient mm -hmm. strikes me that to be supportive, more supportive to a learner than just a passive how did it feel sort of thing, which is um, both gently with the patient and more strongly and supportively with the learner um, not that I know how to do it, but I think that that's something that uh, um, needs to be structured in and, and not just quite as passive as, as gee, that must have felt bad. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a place to start, and it needs yeah. to be more supportive. And so, you know, part of the struggles with this is how do, how do we help faculty get to that point, right? Um, when you don't necessarily have the human capital to provide one-on-one -on -one trainings and to kind of talk through how these situations feel and an e-learning module that people will ignore um, is going to be viewed as annoying and therefore maybe have more negative associations with it. You know, how do you get to that point? Because you can send emails and people won't read them. You can do, but you need to start having the conversation so that we feel more comfortable bringing it up when it happens. Well, I, uh, I thank you very much, and I feel a little proud to uh, be part of an institution that has you in it. So thank you very much. Thank you.